Hello and welcome back to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I say welcome back because it's new season uh, last year. Look, I only got uh, 12 podcasts out for the year, which is like one a month, which, okay, is not a lot. It's an irregular podcast, but we're hoping that it might be more regular this year. We have a new producer on board. His name is, uh, well, his name is also Michael. Now, he's... Here's a bit of our backstory of the podcast, if you don't know the podcast. Um, I have a, an American uh, producer called Mike Hell, and now we have a young Australian producer who's booking guests for this podcast and helping me put it together, and his name is Michael. So uh, Hamish Blake is going to be a guest on this podcast in a few weeks, uh, calls him Radio Mike. Uh, from the world they know each other, he's going to have to be Podcast Mike for the sake of this. So uh, welcome on board, Podcast Mike. Uh, the fact that you're going to hear this podcast more regularly, uh, hopefully once a week this year, but also perhaps, uh, and I say once a week this year, what we might try to do at the start is during the comedy festival and while there's some people around, I even uh, put up a couple episodes a week. So maybe even by the end of the year, we'll get to the idea that we did uh, one per week for the whole year, but uh, let's not get too ambitious. Let's just see if we can do one a week for the rest of the year. So uh, welcome back to the podcast. I'm very happy to have our first guest uh, on the podcast. Her name is Samantha Lane. Uh, those who have been regular listeners to the podcast will know in the last 50 or so episodes, uh, the theme of the podcast has really been that all these people are interesting and different and have different ideas and philosophies about what life is, but they're all people that I know somehow vaguely in my life they're connected to my life because i guess the the other point that the podcast is trying to make is that these are all people that i inter have interacted with in some way so it's about my relationship with them as well as uh who they are and and what they think about the world so uh samantha lane is somebody who is definitely on the fringes of that and as we do the podcast more and more i guess there'll be more and more guests that I've never had the opportunity to sit down for and have a conversation about these sort of things. Previously, some of the people I've had on the podcast, I've also had this conversation with them late at night at a party, uh, you know. Uh, so this is basically why I stopped the podcast because I couldn't go to enough parties. I don't really like parties, but I like the conversation you have at two o'clock in the morning about what life's really about. So that's what this podcast is. I've never had the opportunity with Samantha Lane, but I've been a big fan of hers for years. I grew up listening to her father, Tim Lane, on the radio, uh, one of my first interests in broadcasting and quality broadcasting came through Tim Lane and how entertaining a broadcaster he was and as I got to know Sam incidentally through interactions I had with her because she worked with a whole bunch of people that I knew very well um, and I occasionally would appear on those projects and get to meet Sam and interact with Sam and I always uh, was a great fan of those small interactions we've had but we'd never had a chance to have a big old-fashioned chat so that's what this is today. Uh, if you don't know Sam Lane uh, she is a brilliant sports reporter in her own right. Uh, we talk about the relationship which she had with her father and the idea that that her and her father have chosen the same career is one of the themes that comes up, which is fascinating to me because, of course, I come from a you know a family, a dairy farming family, where that was sort of the choice on board, which was the idea that you know uh, you would follow in your father's footsteps. My father, you know, f followed in his father's footsteps, and my brother is a farmer alongside my dad. So, the idea of not being the person who wanted to follow in your your parents' footsteps and what that means uh, is an interesting conversation to have with someone who chose to do that. Uh, that was one of the more interesting things we get to today. But also, I wanted to talk to Sam because I've been blown away by the AFL women's competition. And Sam, as a journalist who has worked in uh, the AFL system across all of its levels, uh, took a particular interest in what that meant, not only as 
a new competition, but something that was, I think, a momentous change within our society and something that, you know, she sees as being something that will be looked back on as being a very historic moment in our country. And she's written a book about it. It's called Raw. I highly recommend it. Even if you're not interested in uh, football at all, I think you might be interested in this book. If you're interested in history, if you're interested in smart women uh, forming something together and what that means and the trials and tribulations and victories uh, and defeats that come along the way of that, then I think you would love Sam's book. It's called Raw. Uh, the reason that I have not been doing the podcast uh, is I have a bunch of other podcasts, Tofop, Fofop, uh, Two Guys, One Cup, our footy podcast. You can check all those out. Um, I've also started doing a new radio show, which uh, comes up during this uh, interview. And uh, obviously, um, I've been putting a new tour together. I'm currently on tour. I'm in Brisbane at the moment recording this introduction. Uh, uh, I'm on the second night of my three shows here as part of the Brisbane Comedy Festival. Uh, by the time you're hearing this, the next thing I'll be doing is the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Melbourne is my home again now, which is fantastic and has always been the city that has been most supportive of me and my comedy. So uh, very excited to be living in Melbourne and actually doing the festival there for the first time since, uh, well, 16 or 17 years since I was a young comedian uh, starting out on the Melbourne comedy scene. So uh, it's just very exciting for me. I'm very excited about this show. It's been something I've worked on for a very long time and it's uh, been a real, uh, probably the hardest work I've ever done to you know, make it into a show that's for an audience. I feel like it's really getting there now and I feel like the way the audience is responding to it is um, is really exciting to me and I can still see a little bit of growth left in how I'm telling the story because it's a interesting transition for me for this to go from being my story to being an audience's story and I learn more and more about it every night and I'm really excited about it and uh, that's my plug. So I hope you come along and see it, Melbourne, uh, then Perth, uh, Canberra, Sydney. Um, there will be some other places at some other stages, but they're all the ones that are on sale at the moment. So if you want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is buy a ticket to one of my live shows because you get to come and see a fun live show, but you also get to support me. And, uh, you know, with that money, I get to pay, you know, Podcast Mike and Mike Hal and uh, all the people who help bring you this podcast every week. So thanks again to Samantha lane for being the first one back uh in the next few weeks i can uh promise a couple uh that we've already recorded so hamish blake uh definitely will be coming up that one's recorded and uh joe stanley uh, someone i've known for 20 years but again probably have never had the opportunity to sit down and have like you know a chat about what you know life means to her and the trials and tribulations of life and it was a really fascinating chat as well i'm going to grab some big big name acts from the comedy festival i might try to bring you some smaller people and as we get past the comedy festival and into the rest of the year then we're going to expand uh, our world out and interview a whole bunch of you know different and interesting people that aren't necessarily you know friends of mine maybe people that have just crossed briefly into my world but i have a lot of interest in so I'm hoping that you will come along for the journey. Thank you very much for tuning back in. I know if you're listening to these out of order at some stage, this makes no sense anyway, but we figured seeing it was back, I should do some sort of proper introduction. So uh, thank you very much for listening. Uh, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Cheers. Hello, you're listening to Willosophy with Will Anderson. I am Will Anderson from the name of the podcast and I have a guest. Oh, we're back. 
I should mention we're back. I assume that this is the first one that you're hearing in our new series. It's certainly the first one we're recording in our new series. I don't know. Maybe maybe John Travolta will come to town and I'll sit down with John and we'll have to use him as the first episode to launch to the press. But barring that, I think our next guest is going to be the first in the series. So uh, welcome guest, as I always ask at the start of the podcast, who are you? Thank you, Will. Uh, I'm Samantha Lane, uh, Samantha Jane Lane, and uh, goodness, who am I? I'm a human being. <laughs> I write, I um, talk and uh, feel for a living, I think. I uh, hope I'm a good friend. I'm not a sister or a brother, but I'm someone that's involved in my community and probably someone just trying to get a better balance between living and working. Okay, good first answer. Yeah. By the way, lots of things I'd like to unpack in that if I could. Go for because, it. Um, write and talk. Uh, you write know, that's talk. something that people who are aware of you or uh, have some awareness of you from my introduction. Uh, I just noticed there's a fly in this room now <laughs> that, like, literally, this is an empty house, and I don't know how a fly has got in here, but it is just buzzing around in front of us in the middle of the podcast. Okay, well, if that gets annoying, we'll it's our go. other guest. It's John Travolta, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think somebody's bugging the podcast, literally. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, people know you as a writer and a talker. Yeah, like uh, that. You describe that it's part of your job to also feel. Mm. Um, that's an interesting thing to me. What do you mean by that? I think, and you know, I've cut my teeth in journalism, being a print journalist, so with the written word. And I guess if I were to talk about that, what appeals to me is when the written word can convey things that we actually feel. And I've all, always thought that the things I'm most interested in reading are the things that, you know, to use a turn of phrase, strike a chord. So. Uh, as a journalist, I feel that if I'm speaking to someone and recording their voice, the best way for us to get something good on the page is to feel something together. And so I think I've heightened my awareness about feelings so that I can learn to read people, look at what they're doing with their hands, with their face, uh, where they're looking at certain times when we're talking about certain things and... Uh, that helps me read people and therefore helps me tell stories. That's really interesting to me because I think I, I went to journalism school and it's not really something that's, I have a degree in journalism. The only thing that I'm actually technically qualified in, as I like to say to people at comedy gigs, if you're not enjoying this, it's because you've chosen an unlicensed professional. <laughs> I am not in any way qualified to be a comedian. I'm a qualified journalist. <laughs> But one of the things that they didn't teach us was, you know, really that thing that you've spoken about, which I do think is so important, which is what's the story that's happening behind what it is that you're being told. So how do you know when there is a difference between what you are being told and what the truth is? Ooh, all right. Uh I, let's let's distinguish stories for a minute because in print and at the age I left the age last year I'm sure we'll get to that later um, I was doing news and and features and there's a real difference in terms of the journalistic skills I apply to those two ways of speaking I guess to the world news would be more where I'd be questioning what you asked me which is what's the truth what am I being told and that can be tricky because even people who you in theory should believe 
are sometimes motivated by a bigger picture which is for them upholding the reputation of a massive organization for instance or just a small one like a footy club Uh, so sometimes you can get a sense as a journo that you're not being told the full truth but you also get a sense that it's their truth for now Um, in a feature interview so if we were sitting down and I was asking you the questions that you're about to ask me I would actually go in thinking that you were going to tell me the truth and that if you'd agreed to do a sit down with me it was because you knew a bit about me and the kind of stories that I like to tell and I'd be shocked if anyone sort of sat down with me wanting to tell a falsehood um, about who they are. It's interesting that I, I, I like what you've said there because I I have a bit of a policy in my personal career that I don't do profile pieces. Like I'll do, uh, you know, interviews, publicity to plug something that I've made, you Mm. know? So if I have a show or something, I'm happy to do publicity, but the idea of just doing a profile piece, which is like, here's Will Anderson for no other reason than you should know something about Will Anderson is something that I have never been particularly comfortable with. I recently did one uh, to promote a bunch of new shows that I have and this magazine had been asking me for ages and I sat down with the journalist and, you know, we spoke for 70 minutes and at the end she sort of commented that she didn't think that I would have, with my reluctance to do that style of things, she didn't think that I would have given her what I gave her, right? And the thing that I said is, well, no, 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 the minute I said yes to doing this, I agreed to the terms and conditions of doing this. Like, I'm not going to come along here and not give you what you need to do your job. If I felt like I was not going to give you what you need to do your job, I would have said no to doing the interview in the first place. Do you find with athletes that they tend to have that attitude that they bring to the table when they're going to sit down with you and openness to tell this story? Or is there in the, particularly the football world, you know, something we were briefly talking about off air is this idea that often they do have their guard up and they have their boundaries up and they're not necessarily willing to share that sort of detail? I think it depends on the setting. So I, I've, I've interviewed people long form for the paper, so for writing black and white and for, and for the book that I've just written. Um, I also have this other world, which is Channel 7, Saturday Night Footy, uh, the AFL games all through the season. And there you do those interviews that will probably be your idea of a nightmare, given what you've just told me, which is you've got three minutes and you're sitting down and you're going to ask Nat Fife. What's happening to the Dockers? Do you like your coach? What do you think of your critics? And by the way, you're really into meditation. Tell us about that. Right. You know, I mean, seriously, that's enough to blow anyone's brain. And yet these players and athletes in other sports are used to having to do that. Uh, so I guess I see both sides of that. Typically, again, when I've sat down with someone long form, they, they've chosen, I don't think I've, done long form interviews with people who have been told by a club or a, an athlete you know from a team you need to do this I've certainly had people say I'm sorry I can't and I think they're probably the people like you who have sensed if I'm going to do this I've got to do it wholeheartedly and I don't know if this is a podcast where I can ask you questions but no, I'm, absolutely re- I'm really interested it's a discussion you can definitely ask me questions because I'm interested in why you don't want to do what you haven't 
well, what you said you wouldn't do, like the, just the profile thing and why you said yes to this one. Was it about the journalist or was it about the magazine or was it something in you at this point in your life that you felt you wanted to do it? You know what it is? It, like for me, it's it's a really simple state of mind, which is if I, for me, the process of what I do for a living is about the making of the thing. Now, if I am proud of making a thing, then I should never be ashamed of then flogging that thing in whatever place it is. Like if I believe that I'm, if I have a quality product that everybody needs to know about and I want as many people to see as possible, then I don't mind where I go to, you know, promote that product. Come mm. and see this thing that I'm proud of making. Okay. I don't feel that same way about me. Like as in like me just as a, you know, I'm going to go out and sell me, you know, the idea. I've always loved the idea that as much as like, you know, my career has been successful enough. I have a really quiet and modest life. You know, I don't go to movie premieres. I don't really get recognized down the street if I have my hat on. It's the way I prefer to live my life. Mm -hmm. And so this was really that, I mean, honestly, the tr absolute truth is I've written this show that is the thing that I believe is probably the best thing that I'm ever going to do. You know, I had something to write about that, you know, gave me the opportunities to write a show that I probably you know, may not have an opportunity to write again. And I just want now I've worked on it for eight months and I just want as many people as possible to see it. So yeah. if there's a chance that doing a profile piece in Stella magazine, you know, gets more people to come and see it, then I was willing to do it. But if you'd asked me to do that in August, when I don't have a show to sell, then I probably would have still said no. And it's funny because listening to you say that, I totally get what you're saying. But the probably the journo in me says, you it, to me, everything you just said is fascinating. So as a journo, I'm interested in you saying, I just live a humble life. I'd sit down and say, okay, what does humble mean to you? Does it mean, you know, you fast for three weeks of every for you know do you i don't know it, blah 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 yeah and and the other thing i think of you're uh, clearly because it's you you're thinking about you i'm thinking about all these people that love you and support you and your work they they really like it means something to them to learn more about you uh, and that's something that's sometimes hard for people with profile to grasp but it's true it you know, I've dealt with some people in recent times for, for the book I've written who really had to challenge why am I telling so many personal things because they're personal. And ultimately what they mostly came around to was it's a, this is actually not about me. This is about somehow maybe through sharing the fact that there was a massive murder in my family and it ruined this and that and that that I might actually help someone else so that's what I loved about being able to go really personal with people that if for them it was a realization that it actually was not about them at all even though that can be challenging for an individual as Do, you've described I actually agree with what you say and I want to dig deeper into that in relation to the book but I'll put a button on my yeah. bit and we can get back okay, to your great. bit yeah. which is I think that people see and hear enough of me. You know, I have four different podcasts. I have a radio show. I have a television show. I do stand up all over the place. There is an element of me that says when I'm not needed, 
stand aside and make a space for somebody else. Like I'm going to get a chance to share my opinions about, you know, anything that I want to share my opinions about in various different ways. I don't necessarily need another three pages in Stella magazine for people to hear my opinions. But it's that little bit that you save that is most interesting to someone like me. Yes. So I've met, and you know, we have a lot of colleagues in common that we've worked with. I would love like, maybe in another life or chapter, there are things I know about some of these people. You know, Dave Hughes is an example that Mick Malloy, I just, these things and qualities and aspects of their lives, Luke Darcy, that I'm like, oh, I would love to just narrow in with them talking about that part of who they are. Because it is, it's another side that we don't see. So yes, you do stand up. You guys talk on commercial radio, you do all sorts of things. Half I can't keep up with even. Um, but there are sides to you that are really, they would surprise so many people. And I'm not, I can't disclose no, them because you need the permission of I people. I agree but. with you. There is no doubt that if like there is a lot that I think people who share their lives with the public often are very protective about the bits of the, their lives they don't share with yeah, the public, I think. Fair if enough. If you have to share so much of it, you carve out, I think, safe spaces to share in your mind and your brain. Yep. But there are things like intimate details about your life or who you are or what your personality is and all these sort of things that are yours so that you yep. can separate the work you from the real you a little, mm. I think, perhaps. But I want to talk about this in relation to your book, which is, mm. by the way, absolutely fascinating. Talking about feeling you know, an important thing in what you said. By the way, we'll get to the philosophy thing. It, it, <laughs> okay. it doesn't have to happen at the start. We, we've jumped in and there's plenty of things here. Um, it's called Raw. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about the first year of the AFLW. Yep, uh, AFL Women's League. Yep. Well, that's, you know, that's the kind of essentially what, you know, that's the, the title story of what it's about, but it's about so much more than that. Much like Martin Flanagan's book, uh, A Wink from the Universe, about the Bulldogs thing. It's about the idea that one event can be seen from a whole bunch of different perspectives. You had a whole bunch of women. So Martin's book, he manages to tell the story of the Bulldogs premiership, but, you know, he literally goes from, you know, the president to a person in the crowd to, you know, and you get the idea that this one thing happened that day, but that one thing meant various different things to various different people, which Mm -hmm. is, I think, such a wonderful way to look at the world that I think we're not doing very much anymore. Everything has become so black and white that we've forgotten the idea that even the exact same event can mean very different things to different people. And that's something that I think your book shares with Martin's book and something that I certainly really responded to because, A, the headline is, it's the AFLW, it's the first year, you know, and the easy way to define that would be, and everyone had the exact same experience and learnt the exact same things and felt the exact same way about it, which is there are certainly common themes, but th- that is not the case either, is it? So no. can you speak to me about the, A, why you wanted to do the book mm. and then how you went about deciding what the book was going to be? Yeah, uh, and thank you. And Martin Flanagan's not only one of my favourite writers, but also just one of the best men I've no ever doubt about that. met. We should try to get him on the podcast, Michael. Yeah, and Dave Hughes that. and Mick Malloy <laughs> and Luke Darcy. And <laughs> Sam's going to leave some questions okay. that we can ask yeah. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> great deal. Um, so, okay, I was – I knew AFL was going to launch AFLW – And I was very excited about that because I about 
goodness, I should know this off the top of my head. It's probably seven years ago, something like that, was asked to go and speak to a group of, of young footballers. It was an AFL academy out at Princess Park at Carlton. And someone asked me who I'd never met before and they said, uh, you just come, you can talk about the media, blah, blah, blah. And I hadn't done many talks engaged by the AFL before and I think – honestly it's because I used to write things that used to really get up their nose and annoy them and one thing I used to challenge them about was diversity now that's another word for gender equality all sorts of equality so when I got this invitation I was quite interested in why I turned up and actually the academy was a group of women young women who for the first time had ever been um, paid for by the AFL to do what you know, we know as say an academy training camp that men and boys do just as a matter of course. Uh, they get tapped on the shoulder, you're going to be elite and let's, you know, let's boost up your skills. This was the first time women had ever got that funded by the AFL. So they invited me to talk about the media. I stood up, uh, it was a room, you know, not much bigger than this, so not a large room. And I felt really intimidated and I started the whole thing by just saying, oh, hi, I'm Sam. Uh, yes, I work in footy, but you guys are so much tougher than me. You play it, you know, rah, rah, And then we had this great chat. At the end of that night, a woman who actually turned out to be the woman that invited me said, you know, these guys play on the MCG tomorrow. And I was like, um, no, I didn't. And she said, what are you doing? And I, I had nothing on. I was working. but So I went and I stood next to this same woman who proceeded through the course of this morning to just talk me through every single player. And by the end of the match, she said, now the big vision is that come 2020, AFL – men's clubs as we know them will have AFL women's teams and within that chat she called she she made a penny drop in my mind I grasped this vision of a different looking AFL so I rang my sports editor at the age and said Alex I've just seen this and this woman said this and this game happened and he said that's really great because it's a slow news day could you just write that please write exactly what you just said you're clearly very excited so I went off and like interviewed people and just wrote it the next day it was the Sunday age it ran in the midst the double page spread of sport and women's footy had never got this coverage before now that's one thing what happened afterwards started to show me what existed I was getting emails uh, phone calls letters handwritten letters of thanks thank you for coming and covering our game thank you for doing this thank you for articulating the vision and I thought I've never been thanked for anything in my life like normally you get yelled at right. in the AFL because you've annoyed someone nice. yeah I was like, wow. But it kicked in for me, uh, I guess, an understanding, the beginning of an understanding of something that was growing but that was meeting a brick wall. That brick wall, it turns out to kind of hopefully be laid out in the opening to my book, which is actually a history of discrimination, of being dismissed, of being ridiculed, being pigeonholed and a whole lot of things um, to boot like homophobia, 
and sexism. And so women have actually been playing organised footy in Australia for more than 100 years. They've been wanting to have a platform like men have had for more than 100 years that we know and love as the AFL. There have been people, male and female, who have been championing that and for a whole lot of reasons have not had traction until 12 months ago. <laughs> like this is modern history and it's a cultural story. It's a cultural phenomenon. So once I grasped this vision, I was not going to let go as a journo who covers men's footy for a living of what was possible and my motivation was that I love football I want it to be really really good I don't want to play it but I want women and girls to have the same opportunities as boys and men and so I started writing it when I could like without going bonkers and watch this wave of momentum um, agitated in some of my writing, challenged in some of my writing, but also tried to really profile people who I knew were um, up and coming players like Daisy Pierce. And then there was a match that. Just, uh, yeah, I, sorry. I, I, you, it's so fascinating because I, I, I didn't want to interrupt, but I just want to. I'll forget about this. Yes, so I'm just going to mention go. Daisy Pierce while we're here. Please. Again, this is good on air production for us, Michael. We should get Daisy Pierce on the podcast. Do it. But uh, she. It feels amazing to me that four years ago, maybe four or five years ago, she was the only female footballer, if you'd name me, and I'm an AFL fan, you know, diehard, have a footy podcast, you know, like a, a fan fan. And if you'd asked me, name a, an, you know, a female footballer, I would have said Daisy Pearson. That was the only one you knew because she'd won like, you know, every best and fairest every year. And she was the one, but we didn't know her. Mm. I knew her name, but to see her A, play football, but B, you know, what she's done in the media space around football in the name of promoting the game. It, I, I think, why did we miss this? Why were we without Daisy for, you know, the five years previous to this? I feel like not only is it great that we're seeing this, but with that comes that sense of, we kind of possibly missed the best of Daisy Pierce as a footballer. Oh, we have. And, you know, we've missed people like Debbie Lee, Will. Like, it's really interesting. You're a Bulldogs fanatic. Debbie Lee is from, you know, that way. And she made a team years ago, and she's one of the heroes in the book. She yep. was the president of the Victorian Women's Football League. Um, when she was 19, she was playing out in the Western suburbs in a team that she created and she thought it was a great day when the male team uh, said we'll come and watch you that was great until they turned up in a hired truck with a hired spa on the back sunk beers the whole afternoon and screamed out homophobic remarks like that was Debbie Lee's experience <sighs> yeah and so all these things just to go back to my earlier like long form <laughs> how did this happen how did I get hooked all these things said no to women. All these things said to Erin Phillips, who's now the best, most influential player in AFLW, said, you can't play footy. What did she do? She went and played basketball and and went to the Olympics. Right. They walked away. They Yeah, but then a lot of them kept Went playing. to America and played in the WNBA. Which, yeah. And came back to Australia and like was the best footballer in the competition. Blitzed it. I mean, it, it even shines a light on how little we have cared about women's sport in the major media sense that 
I know more about Erin Phillips' basketball career now because she's playing in the AFLW than I... Like, you know, she was a world-class athlete previous to the yep. AFLW, but I'd, I'd never heard anything about it. It's amazing, isn't it? And that that it's spot on. And that's why it's so powerful for women in sport. Um, yeah. Okay. Me- yeah. So meanwhile, go, sorry, okay. but, yep. there, you know, so Erin did her thing, but meanwhile... Other players, you know, the the bulk actually of who make up the AFLW now, they were just playing out on, you know, any reserve that they could get a look into and mostly they were pushed aside as second-class citizens um, because they were women playing footy. And to the AFL, which, you know, the opening of the book is 70 pages and that's what I'm hoping is a non-boring version of modern history, at the AFL itself where it always had the power to put great participation numbers into something more meaningful, i.e. a competition. What I've I've shone a light on in the book in longer form is that the cultural issues were right there at the AFL. So you had a woman commissioner join who was trying to advocate for women's footy and saw glazed eyes. You have a woman who becomes the first ever female football development manager for the AFL who had her salary questioned by the AFL executive because they thought it was a luxury. That same woman tried to see Andrew Dimitriou, she says three times, never got a response. That same woman is the woman that stood with me on the MCG and gave me my penny drop moment. Uh, how much, when you're writing a book like this, uh, you know, in there's kind of almost two things going on at the same time, which is you're telling a, a history of, yeah, like you said, a moment of history. Like here's a, here's a snapshot of, you know, an explanation of and, you know, a documentation of, a moment in history you know maybe something that you know in the future will be viewed as even a bigger moment than we're realizing that it is right now although i must say i was at a party in sydney um the night the first ever aflw game was played at princess park and i remember i just disappeared for the, for the party for an hour and a half because as soon as you started seeing the reports like on twitter in the afternoon of suddenly that the ground was full and it was going to be a sellout and then suddenly I was overwhelmed by the sense that, oh, hang on, hang on, what, hang on, what just happened? Like this is, you could tell that night it was history, Yeah, yeah, But you come into this and then, like most competitions in the world and most things that happen in the first year, there is often a lot more interest or enthusiasm or whatever in the first year of it. And then as something moves forward, it actually can be a little bit more difficult Mm. for a while. Did you have any sense of that when you were writing the book about the idea that, you know, things might get more difficult before they get better again? I'm an optimist. So I was hearing people say year two will be hard because year one, as you've referred to, I mean, there were there was a lockout, there was there were terrific crowds, there was increased sponsorship and people were turning up to these games Um and watching on telly. So they're big metrics for people that, you know, base success on these things. Uh, I'm optimistic because what I know for a fact is that the AFL conducted research with people who were going to the games. So the people that are filling the stands of the Witten Oval, they were writing down on surveys, I don't consider myself an AFL fan. And then when they dug a little deeper with those people, they were saying, I feel disillusioned. I feel... Uh, unconnected to the AFL 
and I can extrapolate that, that's because a lot of things have happened in sport in general around integrity, um, sex scandals, etc. that put a whole lot of people off. They think I don't want to like devote my time to watching these buff heads like get around and then play up on the weekend. I can understand that. I guess I also know that there's a lot of good stuff in it, like really great stuff, but AFLW was attra- is attracting crew that think they don't like footy. But then they go to this and go, this is an awesome community. Like I'm seeing my neighbor, we're talking about it at school and it's like people like us. So it has brought this new audience and that's why I think, sure, if, it, if ratings dip, if crowds dip, fine. It is undeniable what it has already attracted. And my theory is that that is planted, it will grow. I couldn't agree with you more on that point. I find it very weird to follow the commentary that's been around a lot of the media this year around the idea. It, it feels like it's constantly being compared to the men's game. Yeah, which is and, tiresome. Well, it's just ridiculous too. I mean, like, you know, it's been around for, uh, you know, a year and a half a season and the men's game, as you said, has been around and look, even you know, in the professional era has been around for decades. Yep. You know, like, and these men have had the opportunity to play football since they were five and continue to play it through their teen years and, you know, be put into academies and programs and all these sort of things. But yep. so obviously on that level, it's ridiculous to compare it. I understand that the like the players want to be treated with the same respect and professionalism, which I agree is important. But the overall game itself, I think we almost make a mistake when we try to make it too much like the men's game. Mm. It's its own unique individual product. And as you said, it has an appeal to those who think that the men's game has gone in a direction, even the game on the field has gone in a direction they don't enjoy. Totally. Yeah, the women's game has an opportunity to be, you know, an equal thing, Mm. but its own different thing. Yeah, and it is so different and the difference is beautiful. So, you know, their slogan year one was see what we create. Well, I liked everything I saw that was created. Again, as a journo, I love how these women have turned up and – the way that they speak, like they're uh, un, they're not that um, schooled from the don't give anything school. Right. <laughs> what is that school called again? Yeah, the, literally, they don't give anything school. I think that's what it's called. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah. Um, they just speak as they feel. Uh, there is a rawness and a an openness, and this I don't know, just this refreshing gust of air that is blowing through the clubs that have it and making the clubs that don't feel really envious. And we're, goodness, like we sit down, we're consumers of media. We're, as humans, we, we sense this really quickly. So that magnetizes people to it, If as long as they open their eyes and their ears. So when you're writing a story like this, you it, the, the thing that I kind of wanted to – ask you about is that there's kind of two separate things going on you're capturing all that and there's a responsibility i imagine if you're telling the story of such a momentous thing to you know represent that story well but you're a journalist as well like how do you balance you know your journalist eye you know and make sure that you're not writing a a puff piece a pr piece which it is by the way it is it is not that but i just am interested more in 
you know, how your process works like yeah. that, how you choose how to tell this story. Yeah, well, it's thanks for that point because when I was asked to write it by Penguin, uh, the first season hadn't happened yet. Now, it was the first season was joyous and I was totally on that joy train you know I was employed by channel 7 to do the boundary writing I was seeing it up close I could touch it and interview it it was really great but what I also knew is that for many reasons and many decades there was a history underneath this beautiful joyous picture that was painful and that had uh, experienced discrimination so as a journo I knew I needed to tell that so my trick the difficult thing for me in that first 70 pages was to write to celebrate and so I think I started there you know I I'd certainly get there very quickly that opening night but I also knew I needed to go I needed to probe into the boardrooms where it was not respected and it was in fact dismissed so I felt as a journo I I was never going to write a puff piece because actually what motivated me to write the intro to the book was about telling the warts and all story, which those first 70 pages are. And then I go into 10 chapters with 11 different characters who I sit down with like this and they've just essentially opened the pages of their lives and told me stories that hopefully you can see as you read it, have a lot of themes through them of resilience, of overcoming adversity uh how did daisy pierce put up with being the only woman among all the men how interesting that her dad like would sit down with her on friday night footy and do fake boundary writing and now she's a boundary writer you know so all these beautiful personal insights are through it but by no means are even the personal chapters just a stroll through the park like they all tell me so i mean things that I could never have predicted Will and I do have a fairly vivid imagination. I mean, I could never have predicted the terrain that these subjects have walked me through. When you are in an interview, and I've had a few, you know, of these that, you know, my, I'm not a, you know, it's not uh, Andrew Denton's enough rope. I used to tease Andrew that he didn't feel like he'd had a good interview unless someone cried. That's not the nature of this you know, podcast, although sometimes it just goes there naturally. Mm. And, you know, I've had those moments where suddenly you're in it and somebody's talking about something that clearly they've wanted to talk about for a very long time. When you're a journalist or a writer in those moments, you, a, you, you're obviously aware that, yeah, this is the good stuff. This is what you've come from. Mm. How do you judge in those moments how far to let them talk, how many questions, like when to push it more, when not to push it more. Is that something that's instinctive to you or do you have like a, a strategy towards? I'm just interested in like, you know, when somebody starts to open up about something like that, something mm. that you didn't see coming when you yep. sat down to do the interview. Yep. What's your approach? When you asked me the very first question of this interview, I think I responded, I mean, I said a lot of stuff, but one of the first things I said was I'm a human being and when I've when I've been invited to those kinds of conversations and disclosures, I take them so seriously. And normally we are a certain way into a chat anyway. Sure, as a journo, I've done my research. I'll be sometimes 
angling. Uh, there are other occasions and more new settings where you push. In a sit-down, respectfully, you angle. That's This is how I do it anyway. Um, you lead but respectfully and then you see and then you pick up on it might be a word you might just instinctively say oh are you uncomfortable you're doing that with your hands or whatever you keep noticing that i do i do do it the whole time yeah okay well i'll forget about it next time (laughs) 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 but so uh when yeah i i suppose i just use instinct and but always respectfully and look uh, I don't think it's something I need to be ashamed of when such as in this book when people have talked to me about murders in their families about uh, loss of other sorts of just pain uh, there have been times in these interviews where I've just sat down and I've been really emotional with them so I guess a bit like maybe when a friend tells you something, um, you just you're empathetic and you just listen and you might even I don't know like get involved in the conversation. I mean, I've lost my I lost my mum when I was ten. I really connect when people start talking about loss. I was going to um, say though, I mean, you mentioned in your description at the start that you are an only child. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, no brothers, no sisters, mm. um, and something that may or may not be true but is often associated with kids who are only children is actually a lack of empathy you know you weren't raised around you know having to share and do things like that where do you think that sense of empathy came from in you Mm, well maybe thinking on the hop here I hadn't unpacked that for myself before um a desire to connect so I really like to connect I don't try to force it with anyone because you can't but in those moments where you feel like you have it feels really good and funnily enough when people ask me why do you love footy uh, it's because it actually helped me connect to the world and yeah if you don't have a brother and a sister and you lose your mum at 10 and then you move in with your dad and he's a sole parent um, you might have three cats but you've got two humans and so you probably do need to like branch out a bit and uh, it's funny in life that we tend to connect perhaps most strongly to things that are very vivid for us and it so happens that if a major event in your life is a death then if you find someone you can talk to about loss and how actually loss becomes gain and how death becomes life. (laughs) These happen to be quite deep conversations and it is sort of group, uh, well, it's a mutual um, joy sometimes when you can have that kind of conversation with someone else rather than just yourself from the age of 10. I imagine as a 10-year-old and, you know, feel free to move off this whenever, you know, you feel uh comfortable but to deal with something that big one of my best friends charlie lost his dad when he was i think 11 so you know similar sort of age but you know i can imagine daughter and mum. you know um he was you know the eighth of eight kids so he had a you know family infrastructure around him that could help raise him Mm. you know um 
you, you know, the story you just tell is that you're moving in with dad, age 10, yeah. no one else, three cats. Yeah. And your dad, uh, you know, is a, you know, a well-known, you know, sports broadcaster and, and writer journalist himself. Yep. And, you know, I imagine was probably away a bit as <laughs> yeah, well. I mean, calling, I mean, he was, you know, I met like from growing up listening to him, you know, call sport on the radio. I imagine that he must have been away a lot as well. Heaps. And they were, mum and dad were divorced. So I lived with mum. So this was a massive change. And you're right. I mean, it was late November in 1989 when mum passed and that's cricket season in Australia. And uh, dad was actually in Perth um, the day I found my mum at home. (laughs) Um, He came home that night from Perth, but you know, um, that morning and it's one of the most vivid things, you know, it was my auntie who was there, um, who came and got me and dad was there by the end of the day. But, um, it was hard. Like he, he, and we talk about it a lot. Dad's one of my best friends, but he had to keep traveling to do cricket so that he could sort of keep his life as well. And he's explained to me as an adult why that was really important for him equally in the times in between he was also learning how to be a father like a proper present father and he did an incredible job of learning fast (laughs) um but I couldn't go. He does strike me as a man who does his research. From listening <laughs> yeah. to his, uh, you know, he's reading his columns and listening to his sports broadcasting. He feels like a man who'd do his research. He's meticulous. Was he the same well, as a parent? Is that? Oh my gosh, it was stressful watching him prepare my lunches. Right. Like the Glad Wrap was perfect. <laughs> it really was. He's a Virgo. Um, anyway, and gets quite stressed if there's like any crumbs on the bench. It's interesting to me that you describe him as a, a like a close friend of yours, which is, I mean, a wonderful thing to hear but also obviously you went into a similar profession and I'm always interested Mm. in my brother is a farmer as is my father and they work together on the farm and there's often something about that that I you know wistfully you know look at and go oh look at that you know my dad and my brother working in the same industry and be able to share this sort of intimate thing together but Mm. I on the other hand was one of those kids who you know well I mean I'm doing something that's almost the complete opposite of what my yeah my father's lived on the same road all his life and I can't settle in the one place you know like he's never had a drink of alcohol it's fair to say I've had his share and my share (laughs) some of Mick Malloy's share you know (laughs) like it's one of those things where I'm so so to me because I'm not like that Mm. um it's fascinating to me when I you know meet people who are like that did you always have a sense that you shared the same sort of passions and interests? Well, when I moved in with dad, uh, no, because I was, I was that kid that, you know, I would just obsess over young talent time and use the ad breaks to go and get changed into the next costume. Like uh-huh. my life <laughs> ambition was to be on young talent time. I just, you know, I sang, I danced, I was upside down half, like most of my childhood, gymnastics, acrobatics, um, yeah, dance five times a week. Um, Mum was a nurse. Um, her idea of a great afternoon was like gardening and then we went to the movies, you know. Um, Dad was this sports nut who I didn't actually relate to other than I'd ask him for footy tips. And, he'd, you know, he'd have me for two days every week and make me great spaghetti bolognese and buy me an ice cream. And I loved that, you know, and I loved 
dad. But when I moved in with him, I, we didn't have a common ground. He'd take me to dancing, um, but I didn't like going to the cricket. I hated it. And I had to go quite a lot because when he couldn't organize someone to look after me, I'd just have to sit in these sports boxes. And I just, I would sit there, roll my eyes. I thought the men were like old, boring, smelly, and I hated the cricket. I, I once took knitting to the cricket because I thought that was more interesting than watching a Sheffield Shield at the Junction Oval. It actually, you can probably hear it, it made me angry like that I was chained to this boring right. thing. And footy was a bit better, but yeah, I didn't go to footy liking it. Well, what? that's what I would have imagined. <laughs> like, that, to be honest, if I was just going to have a gut, yeah, a guess at those circumstances and what they would lead to, I would have thought it means you have nothing in common and, and yeah. you go, right. So how did you come to a place where you started to like it? So it was through footy and I still maintain my sort of nose up at cricket, but that's another story. I don't really love the cricket, but with the footy, I suppose what got me was some of these co-commentators of dads on the radio and they were older men, but what I realized after a while, they weren't boring and smelly. They were actually gentle men and they were interested in me. They, they were, they told colorful stories. I bet. Uh huh. <laughs> I bet. So that's maybe where I started getting interested. And they had big voices, big hands. You know, they were ex-footballers: Stan Alves, David Parkin, and all these people that did special comments. Tommy Hafey, who used to be so nice to me, and I was probably first taken by his bulging, you know, biceps right. and his tight t-shirts you know and then i mean i mean he was like something out of like a popeye comic or something (laughs) so as a kid i can imagine i mean he was that sort of character to you know to anyone so i can imagine as a kid he would be fascinating a little girl yeah and then so i was in these boxes and then it i got older because it was so of course like it's over the course of years i got older and got a bit more confident and so at princess park i started walking outside and I started sitting alone while dad was calling in the grandstands and there, and it would be like me sitting on this couch, except we've got people either side. I would look to my left much sooner than I'd look on the field and I'd see a mum and dad and kids. This is where it probably gets a bit tragic because you'll be the psychologist on this, but they would pull out freshly cut sandwiches. They would have a thermos. They would have a rug. They would watch the footy and they would be together as a family. And I'd just be like, this is the next best thing to being them. I'm sitting next to them. And I loved it. And then footy was happening. And so footy in the end caught my eye. Then I started loving the footy and the blues And they were successful in this period. So, you know, I had that luck of following a successful team. I had access through dad to people like David Parkin, who became a male mentor for me. You know, he was the coach. He had so many things going on and was coaching bloody premierships. And yet he took time to write me letters. We were pen pals uh, because... Dad introduced me one night and I think introduced our circumstances. David essentially is one reason why I was recruited because he showed me that my opinion counted, that there were 50% women in every audience and that 
there was one journalist who kept capturing, capturing dad's attention and it was Caroline Wilson. So it didn't take long once I started growing up to go, well, there's some inequality there. I'm going to write about footy. That's interesting to me. I, look, how, how long have we gone so far, Michael, without me asking the actual main point of this podcast? 50 wow. minutes. Okay, well, that's not too bad. We've often gone longer than that without me getting to it. But we should get to it and then we can reframe the rest of it. You know what? Let's have a little pause. We're back. back. I had a break. Okay, um, great. Well, you also were forced to have a break. I'm sorry yeah, about that. but It's okay. It's probably good for me. I've already been up <laughs> for a lot of hours talking, which means yes. that uh, I've drunk a lot of coffee. So <laughs> it means that I can only get to about 50, 50 minutes into the podcast without needing a bathroom break. The yeah. joys of being an older man. And you switched to tea, clearly. Yes, I have. Yeah. Once, once I'm finished at the radio, I stop drinking coffee for the day. But I've mm. normally had about six by the time it gets to nine o'clock. So. What time do you go to sleep? Uh, oh, I don't know, like 10, 10.30, you know, something like that. That's pretty late. Yeah. But if I can get an early one in, like, essentially, I don't want to be one of those old, boring people, but what, this is the difference in my life these days is if I have a night to myself, in the old days, I might have gone, hey, it's like I've got a night to myself. I might, like, go out and have a drink or I might blah, blah, blah. Now, if I have a night to myself where I don't have to do anything and no one knows, you know, what I'm meant to do with the night, I, I could be in bed by eight. I'm loving it. One day I will do that. When I have a night to myself, I stay up till midnight because I just find things to do. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so um, tell me, there's a a question that I meant to ask on the podcast and I say meant to. I'm the person who came up with it. Yeah, you run it. You know, I don't don't have to, but I'm going to. Do you have a philosophy to something? (laughs) To something? To something. That's, do you have a philosophy? It, uh, yeah, in just, life? I like to, like, I like to think it might be a life philosophy. Yeah. But I like to lower the expectations <laughs> and stakes for people. It can be a simple philosophy to anything, really. Okay. You tell me if this is a philosophy. Uh, I'll give you an example. This morning, I went to a yoga class. Mm-hmm. And when I walked out, something that happens all the time happened. I was just walking around the corner and I noticed some rubbish on the ground and I start to walk past it and then I go, okay, and then I have to walk back and I have to pick it up and I have to put it in a bin. And so if I were unpicking what is that, because I've often thought, am I just being some obsessed Firstly, this is great. Freak. I'm, I'm dead, no, I'm definitely, <laughs> like I'm 100% on board with this already because this goes to a soft spot for me in my life, but also I'm absolutely fascinated by what you think the motivation for that is. So my explanation, and then I'm interested in what your read is, is that I think you can't walk past that if you think that's wrong. And if you walk past it and you don't try to fix it, what are you doing with the rest of your life? Right. So what you're willing to walk past, the, sta- the, the way that some people would say that is the standard that you're willing to walk past is the standard that you accept, right? Yeah. So if you are willing to walk past a homeless person on the street and ignore that homeless person on the street, then you have at least tacitly approved of the situation that allows that homeless person to be there on the street. Yes. So yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I love that as a philosophy. It's a very uh, difficult one to maintain, obviously, you know, in this big, bad world. You know, I mean, it's easy enough to take the time to 
pick up a piece of rubbish. I mean, but that said, like, you know, people don't pick up their own rubbish. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I remember the fascination with the Japanese, it might have been the Olympics or the World Cup. I think it was the World Cup. And there was a lot of stories about the Japanese fans who were famous for at the World Cup after the matches, they would pack up and pick up every single bit of rubbish and leftover things and, you know, clean their area. Essentially, mm. it was like high school. Mm. You know, they got the gold medal for having the cleanest area at the end of school sports. But yeah. it was an ingrained part of their culture and the way that they, you know, the, the sporting event had been provided for them, but that yeah. wasn't an excuse for them to then, you know, throw their rubbish on the ground and go, that's someone else's problem later. Yeah. So if we can't get people to pick up their own shit, uh, then how do you, you know, get people to pick up other people's shit? Yeah. Correct. And I guess I'd apply that sort of idea or philosophy into relationships. So if you even with work ones where it might be combative or whatever, like just behave in a certain way, keep your dignity, try not, I mean, I'm, it's not always possible, but try to be composed, try to keep you cool. Don't, uh, don't gossip. Like I really don't like gossip because I figure if I'm doing it, it's sort of like, well, people should do it about me or people that I love and I just don't think it's really productive. It's interesting though because like, I mean, I'm sure there'd be a lot of journalists who would argue that like gossip is part of the meat and potatoes of journalism, that information is currency. Yeah, it is. But I would say constructive talking about constructive things as opposed to like I actually don't care about a whole lot of stuff that would be classified as gossip so relationship stuff uh, just bits and pieces stuff that actually doesn't matter to a bigger picture I don't know I just like that small stuff mindless gossip about he said she said and getting fixated on stuff I just think if we put that energy into some big things that are kind of wrong with the world we might be better off in sort of fast tracking some solutions oh well there's no doubt about that if we spent anywhere near as much time building things up as we spend tearing them down we'd really get a lot achieved as human beings so why don't we well because it's easier to destroy than it is to create and they both give you the same feeling oh my gosh but the one is so sad and the other one's so happy i know but sometimes people feel like the only thing that i guess it's like you know sometimes i think there is that um you know there's a famous Peanuts cartoon and it's there, you know, Lucy and the football, you know, the, the whole joke of that was every time that, was it, Char- it was Charlie Brown who wanted to kick the football, right? And Lucy would hold it and she'd pull it out of the way all the time. That yeah. was the, the thing. And, you know, it was the, the idea that she, you know, she's constantly torn between that desire to, you know, to help or to destroy, you know, mm. the, the, you know to create or to, you know, to tear down. And those two things are actually often, you know, intrinsically, combined with each other Mm. um it's interesting what you said about the uh you know the idea that if there's a bit of rubbish there that Mm. you're going to pick it up but more broadly it can be a a bit more of a you know that sometimes you will accept something you know that you don't have to pick up every bit of rubbish either Mm. right Mm. and i think there's an element of that in what you're saying which is if you're in a work situation um and somebody is annoying you you can actually go well, you know what? That thing is annoying. Yep. But I am willing to walk past that. You yes. know, like that is actually the standard I accept. That is part of what comes with that person. Like there's nothing that annoys me more 
of like when somebody has like, you know, say, and this probably goes to your gossip thing. Say you've got a friend uh, that everyone ends up gossiping about every time and they're like, blah, 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 this and blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah, that. And mm-hmm. I hate that he does this. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, either accept that he does that or like pick up the rubbish and do something about it. But what I don't want you to do is walk past it and then bitch about it. Yeah, or waste our time right. and our friendship about talking about someone else. I mean, it's it's a waste of time. Like, <laughs> let's talk about something else, you know. And I guess, you know, with that work example, I think there's a real change in your life when you can actually say this is the way something is and I'm okay to let that be. I don't approve but I'll let it be because I can't change it. And that might just be behavior or the way that I'm putting inverted commas out here in the air, someone makes you feel. And I say, well, I mean, we're responsible for our feelings, so maybe it isn't them, it's just something about them. But there are ways in our work lives, I think, of navigating and personal ones of just navigating some stuff that we don't approve of, but you just you can't change it and you just need to let it be because otherwise it ends up consuming you like that boring chat about gossip i am no i'm interested in it i like it it's like it's interesting to me like because it's an insight into you and i imagine that like over the journey you know being a I mean, look, this is not a what's it like to be a woman in your industry because I imagine, you know, you've been asked a pat version of that question a billion times. But it's also very important and intrinsic to the story that you're telling, also your story, you know, and the fact that these changes have happened that you're documenting Mm. have had broader implications, you know, for you are a woman in what you've described has been traditionally a male dominated industry like caroline wilson who again is someone i'd like to get on the podcast this is a good podcast we're coming up with a lot of good ideas <laughs> um you know was a pioneering person but you see that that with her amazing journalism also comes you get the usual sort of feedback that anyone would get right and that's fair you can you, you disagree with what somebody has written but what you also see comes with that is not in all cases, but people will come with what might be a reasonable argument, but what they layer on top of that is the misogyny or the mm. sexism or the fact that you, sh- you know, that they would say that Caroline can't comment on something from the game because she didn't play in a different way than they would say that about your dad, mm. you know. And I imagine that over the years there's been some things that you've had to, that you would like to tear down but you're like, well, this is not the time or place and I'm not going to achieve anything by tearing it down now. Maybe I have to chip away. Yeah, and there have been times for me where I've thought, why have I stayed when it's been draining? Just, I'm, you know, just saying, like as someone that was one out often and I mean before I joined Channel 7 and I go into my fifth year this year I was with Channel 10 on before the game working with these people we have in common weekly fun and games kind of show Uh, that was one of the most supportive uh, positive happy work environments that I've ever experienced they're not all like that and uh, there have been periods where I've gone, oh, gee, yeah, is this more taxing and tiring than something else I could be doing where I ha- maybe wouldn't feel a need to kind of fight or to be heard? Um, it is annoying, but I know from reading 
books like Lean In that it's actually quite commonplace for women who are in in particularly male-dominated environments to sit at a table and to say something and for actually no one, literally no one hears it and then someone else at the table says the same thing and everyone laughs or everyone like, that's a great idea and the difference is actually just a male and female voice. I mean, you could ask, most women in football would just say that they've been there but ask most women in business and they'll say that maybe ask most women in life it there's just something about the experience that makes that so but I guess I've chosen to be in this very very hyper masculine place and frankly like I haven't played I'm not going to play and I'm not I'm not a hyper masculine woman you know I'm not an alpha female either I'm just I've always wanted to just be me, but sometimes that means that you get frustrated that you're you're not heard. Yeah, no. Well, I mean, how do you? Because this is something that we uh, speak about a lot at Gruen. To be honest, we have a predominantly female team, you know, behind the scenes, and um, that started to be reflected more on air than it was initially. You know, so we've lived through times where no one would bat an eyelid at the fact that there were four men on a panel show and one woman that that would feel like well you know look balance you know mm. there's a woman on the panel mm, right? yeah, yeah you know like Great. i'm not saying that we to a certain extent still don't live in that room i certainly imagine in football you have often been you know the the woman on the panel mm. you know that, oh, they, yes. the, the person that they can point to and go look you know I'm look how woman. diverse we are i will that's when people say to me you know still like i could be in a news agent and someone will go you're that girl from the footy right i mean that's how i right. get it i don't know what they say to you but you're that either that chick that girl or or the next bit is usually gee those boys give you a hard time they actually don't mm. so i don't know what it is that you know inspires this thought or gee you give them a good run for their money i mean that's my narrative still right. and i i they're colleagues but they're friends these people i work with so there's something in there i don't know what that is and to go back to your sort of first point i guess that's why i was so attracted to print journalism because when you put something in black and white it doesn't matter if you are you know sam lane a man or samantha lane a woman it's in black and white and journalism holds if it's powerful so it's so a way to be tell me about journalism because this is something heard. that is fascinating to me uh you know we mentioned earlier we referenced the fact that you have left the age mm. um a lot of great journalists have left the age unfortunately print journalism in this country is not what it was um how do you feel about a leaving somewhere like the age and b just more broadly you know where you feel like the state of journalism is at at the moment mm. uh, leaving and it was a vol another voluntary redundancy round uh last june that was one of the hardest decisions i've ever made um and it felt like a breakup. <laughs> so tell us why it was hard to make it. Because I love the age because I feel it's a really important thing that exists and because I also believe and agree with everything that you just said about 
journalism and the standards dropping in this country. So I believe it's really important that it stays rich, well populated. I was, I left in the same round that Martin Flanagan left. So I'm devastated that The Age loses Martin Flanagan's writings. Uh, I left because I needed to write this book. Uh, so I knew I was not walking away from what I hoped was impactful journalism and and long-form storytelling. But I worry when I see and just – it you don't have to be Einstein. Like when you lose people, when you lose um, experience like Martin Flanagan and Peter Hanlon and other great writers who have left even just the age sports department, the – the overall production has to be lesser than it was and that that makes me concerned and that's just the age. You know, if you're talking about Australia, uh, I worry that my cousins and, you know, younger people, do, I mean, even friends, they don't subscribe to the paper anymore. Where's your newspaper? Like, I mean, you get it at work but. I'm starting to subscribe just because I want to keep subscribing. Oh, I mean, there's been periods of time where I haven't been working, where the only reason I have subscriptions to things that I often forgot I have until someone finally sends through an article and I click on the site and I go, oh yeah, I, I subscribe to this. I can actually read this. It yeah. turns out I haven't read anything on this site for six months, but but you subscribe but for I the subscribe good because of I believe in well in the same way as. I think the MEAA is the worst union ever for comedians. Um, just no interest. In fact, I like on my card it says actor because they don't even have a category for comedians at the oh. MEAA. They might have these days, but when I joined, you know, eighteen years ago or whatever, twenty years ago, they didn't even have a category for what I do. Oh, they need um, to change. This. They don't really have a passion for comedy, as far as I've ever seen. Um, uh, but I believe in unionism. So, yeah. so every year I pay my fucking union fees regardless yeah. because I believe in the idea of what it is rather than me actually ever using it in any way. And it's the same sometimes with journalism, I yeah. must admit. Right. You know, it's sad that like I feel like that, but sometimes I subscribe to things basically just because... To support. To support. Yeah, <laughs> right. to support. It's yeah. really important. But I, they've got to change that category thing yeah and well yeah, i'm gonna take that on basically you seriously know, you they know the, rang me the other day i haven't right. paid my fees <laughs> yeah well you know they've got my credit card details so yeah, i right. keep getting paid right. oh, every year they send me a notice that i've paid them that's you, about what i get from them but you're still an actor it's, it's still an actor oh, i've only ever acted twice in my entire life both times playing myself both for one line and both times quite unconvincingly as far as i was concerned let's but, see if they add comedian yeah i, I mean the only you're thing writers. that i've ever done to really change that is bitch about it on this podcast so i mean you know i could actively lobby towards something but keep up the fight but the point being that you sometimes you are supporting the idea of something rather than the practicality yes you know um it's interesting to me then where you see your journalism going Mm. like you know i'm if the industry has its own issues that it's going to have to work out and you and I sitting here today aren't going to be able to hash out all those reasons, you know, why and where it might be going. But I am very interested in where you are going with your journalism, what your aims and aspirations for your journalism are. Oh, thanks, Will. <laughs> no, I'm in careers counselling. Um, I... I, don't, I don't necessarily even mean like – 
you know, what job would you okay, like to do? Okay, okay. I, I'm more like the actual craft and art itself. Like, okay. you know, uh, what is it that you feel like you have left to achieve in it? What is it yeah. that you would like to get better at? Okay, what well, is it that drives you now in a way that it didn't drive you before? You know, generally to the heart of like what, when you go to work, what is it that like gets you excited? Okay. So I would say long form journalism. So what is lacking in this scene that we've just, described is depth yeah so we're seeing a lot of websites a lot of fast news that is sure it covers the headlines and yeah and it's fairly superficial what i value more and more is the deep feeling there's that word again um but also just probing journalism fierce journalism i value more than ever so journalism that takes on establishments that encourages people who don't have a voice to feel confident enough to trust and perhaps have a voice um so that really appeals to me as much as that can be hard news uh what inspires me about that is that it can make change for good as much as that can be hard going and heavy terrain I also am very motivated and hopefully get to explore more now that I've finished a book and have left the age. So I've got a lot more spare time. I love long form conversation. So you mentioned Andrew Denton before, Enough Rope. Like I would love to see that done properly, but in the kind of terrain that I'm more comfortable in, which is sport and the human beings who bring it to us in all these places around the world, but domestically uh, where we follow them like our footballers. So anything that goes beyond the surface, I'm interested in. What are you interested in outside work? What, what, are, your, what, what, what are your passions outside work? Uh, culture. So... What like does that mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, so most footy seasons, as soon as they're over, I've jumped on a plane and just gone overseas. And I don't even take public transport. I just like to walk. Uh-huh. Walk, walk, walk. Because I just want to see what's making a place tick. So- I'm a big walker, partly because I like to drink, so I don't like to drive flat. <laughs> but partly because I have a, a bad back and hips, so I kind of keeping moving is always good for me. So as I tour around... When I was touring in America a lot, you know, you're landing essentially in a city for a week, mm. you know, to do, well, sort of five days, six days most of the time. And you're doing shows at night, but you have your days free. Mm. And people would often ask me what I would do. And I'd just say, I'd like one day I'll walk in that direction and the next day I'll walk in that direction. Because yeah. there's something about, I could go and visit, you know, places in the city that are the highlights of the city. But what I'd much rather do is just be in the city Mm. you know seeing what people are doing discovering things like doing some of those things still but i'll walk there and maybe the thing that i see on the way there is is more interesting than the destination definitely and so same so i love when yeah what a bad answer i love culture um i like to just be in a place i like to taste it and i like to see it and inevitably i sit down and just write stuff like i just write a lot do you like to write uh i love to write love to write when it's just 
without a deadline or a purpose. And I also do love to, I know. <laughs> no, that's, I mean, oh. I respond to that very well. But like I, when I start out writing a show, it's one of the more fun things in the world to do. Yeah. When I'm a week away from a show, I'm like, why did it. I even, like, why did <laughs> I stay on the farm? This is such a stupid job. I fucking hate writing. <laughs> and, but I also do love writing when, you know, I mean, it's, Again, the easiest thing to say, but when you've done your show and you've written it, there's nothing more satisfying, is there? Like, yeah, well, that's the, I mean, I don't know who said it first, but, you know, I don't like writing, but I like having written. Yes. And I certainly think that there's something to be that. Definitely. I don't really enjoy writing a show, but I like having written a yes. show. Yes, <laughs> yes. So, same, same here. Um, I love interviewing too. So, often, you know, I'll do something like this and if I were recording this, I'd be like, gee, that was a good chat and we got some stuff out of that da, da, da. and then you go oh my god but now I've got to write it right and that feels like the biggest weight on your shoulder to do someone and something justice uh, but then you do it and you go oh good they're happy I'm happy someone rang me and they liked it this is good this is why I do it so yeah I do love writing but writing's not easy I ask this question without agenda, but it's just something that fascinates me more and more. Um, and if you don't have an answer to this, it, that is also totally fine. But if if there is a misapprehension that you think people have about you, what what do you think that would be? Uh, okay, maybe I'll break it into personal and professional. Yeah, sure, yeah? that'd be great. Yep, uh, professional. I'd say that. Uh, maybe a, an, a view that I'm a total hard ass and that, you know, I've been told you're like a dog with a bone, like when you decide to go for something. Um, and maybe that's been seen as a bad thing by people who don't want <laughs> certain stories told. I I think, yeah, I'm hard I'm hard on subjects, but I'd like to think that I'm also fair. Uh, if I've not been fair, I'd want someone to tell me um, and I have open ears. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't know. This notion and, God, if you sat down Carol in this couch, it'd be like she's ruthless. I mean, phew. You can be ruthless on a topic and still care. And in fact, your motivation actually might be that you care about integrity first and foremost. Oh, yeah. It's part, it's part of the, like, I mean, the argument that I often get, my, my employer, uh, well, one of my employers, you know, uh, Triple M, they uh, decided to have a music count on Australia Day. That was something that I disagreed with because I'm a person who believes that we should change the date, you mm -hmm. know. And look, I'm on the public record and I've got stand-up about it and people can, you know, explore my opinions another time. Uh, listen to the episode I did with Briggs. We talked about it a lot. Uh, but people sometimes, like the response you will get and certainly the response I got in that situation was from people, you know, along the lines of why do you hate this country? Why do you hate Australia? Blah, blah, blah. And my argument would be in that situation, which is no, 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 no. This country has been nothing but great to me. Look mm -hmm. at the life I have and it's because of the people of this country and this country. But I want this country to be as great as it possibly can be. So when I argue for a yes vote in the same-sex marriage thing or if I argue for us changing the date so we can have a better relationship with our Indigenous people, that is so that 
we have the potential to be the because I and in the same way I imagine with AFL yes. certainly I think it's that if we were starting from scratch and you wanted to come up with the best entertaining sport in the world and everybody had the capacity I mean the reason that soccer football is the number one game in the world is that all you need is a round ball and yep. you know two goals right yep. our game is much more complicated than yep. that and probably will never be an international game for that reason mm. um, in the form that we know and love the game but there is no doubt in my mind that you compare it day to day with any other sport in the world it is the most entertaining interesting athletic well-rounded you can play it at various shapes sizes you know all these sort of things it's an amazing amazing game yes I think the best journalist, I think Caroline Wilson probably thinks it's the greatest game in the yep. world as well. And and so if you're being hard on someone, it's because you actually care about the game. Now, they might argue, well, that's your view, yep. but, you know, whatever. Um, the personal one yeah. might be, you know, I guess I often have people saying, oh, you go to so many things like you're – like life's so full and so great and all of that and it is but um it's like by no means perfect so if there's a misapprehension like you get you know I've got most of my friends are having kids they're getting married rah, rah, rah. I've probably been married to my work um so there are many layers in our multi-layered lives right. And yeah, so it's not as if I've got everything in my life that I hope for. Uh, there's a couple of quick things I'd like to ask before we finish up. <laughs> yes. Uh, we get to the good stuff. Uh, do you believe in anything you know, bigger than what we are? This, oh. is the, this is the why are we here question. Do you have any sense of what life is about? Do you have any understanding of it? Is there some you know, bigger thing that you follow? Essentially, it comes down to one question. What do you reckon happens when we die? We no, we <laughs> no, we're reborn, and I'm not saying that in like a. I'm saying that in a spiritual way, yeah. and I th I know this will like because of something I feel, and you know, we've talked about me losing mum. She's been alive in and around me ever since, and uh, I see her in places that I least expect it, and the only explanation is that it's her somehow. It might be a flower that I walk past and it just is it's her I I don't know how else to describe it it's a feeling uh that I'm now actually able to discuss more with friends who are losing people in their lives and I just say just be patient you will feel and they live on and so I have no doubt that when we do pass away we reunite with people that we love I don't know how that life looks or even if we're like bodies anymore or just like energy or spirits or whatever but um i know that life goes on because i i sort of feel it must i mean that's a good answer i mean there is no correct answer obviously to this uh question but i like i mean essentially the whole podcast is a conceit so that uh, you can't just go up to someone at the start and go what do you reckon happens when we yeah. die because <laughs> i think if you answer that question and the reason i ask it in the podcast every a guest is that i think by answering that question it tells you a lot about what you think life is about mm. right now i personally you know i'm a bit less you know uh 
certain of what you think, Mm -hmm. you know, is the case. I'm probably a bit more, I often think this about myself. It's a very weird um, fascination because I have a very, my girlfriend teases me quite a lot about the fact that I don't believe in anything, you know, don't believe in ghosts, don't believe in star signs or, you know, spirits or whatever. But my favorite topic to talk to anybody about is what they think life is about. Because Mm -hmm. the one thing I'm certain about more than anything else is that none of us know. So I'm just interested in hearing what everybody thinks mm. you know like i'd i'd much rather i'm not looking for an answer to this question but i'm looking for your answer mm. to this question because mm. that's really what i'm interested in you have been incredibly interesting i could talk to you for hours but that's about the right amount of time i think and we probably <laughs> should let you go thank um, you so much let's talk about the book one more time i will have done a plug up the top but in case sure. anybody skipped the plug up the top yeah. or they were like i don't know who samantha lane is i'm gonna like <laughs> skip through this bit and i'm gonna listen to a bit and then suddenly they've been fascinated by you for all this time and they've got right to the end and they're like you know what i would like to buy that book what is it called it's called raw raw r-o-a-r yeah. but it could have been r-a-w so yeah, it has it certainly has both of those in there, yes, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And the roars for the crowd that packed out that first game of AFL Women's because when I closed my eyes and removed the game that we saw, the Darcy Vessio heroics, the crowd that packed the stadium, actually what I was left with was vibration in my ears and it was an almighty heartfelt roar. That's it. That's that's how you finish a podcast. Mic drop. Sam Lane out. <laughs> Ha <laughs> ha